It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as your hosts discuss the 1960 film, The Virgin Spring. Here we are talking about your first Igmar Bergman film on a podcast, right? I don't think you did any of those on Prognag. So. Absolutely not. But just like I anticipate um, posting Wicker Man, uh, I can't remember if I was going to post Wicker Man or Exorcist, but just like I anticipate posting one of those, I think I have to repost this conversation as well because this is significant, very significant in my mind. Oh, but yeah, so I, I picked this film. I, I kind of ruined it for you in a way, too. You didn't ruin it, but it, it would have been more pure for me. And I do like pure for many movies I watch. Yeah, but you wanted to pick a random Bergman film, and I chose this one just because it was the only one that I've ever really like sought out to see before. Like I, I, I want to see them all, but this one I've actively like searched for a copy in the past just because of its connection to Last House on the Left. Yes. Just shocking because it's not even a film that I like at all, really. Okay. But it's always had a weird kind of intrigue for me. So I wanted to see the original source material. Why did it have a weird intrigue for you? Well, one, I like Wes Craven. Um, and two, I don't know, it just... Maybe I was just the right age when I saw it. But it set off a whole kind of um, interest in extreme horror. Okay. And so I was like, oh, if this, you know, I want to see what the, what they would have done with it in the fifties, like, cause that movie's extremely just kind of grotesque with the prolonged rape scene. Yeah. I've never seen the original or the new version, but now I'm curious to almost check out both. Yeah. I mean, they're all kind of interesting. I don't think the remake is, is particularly, um, impactful in any way, but it's not a, a bad movie necessarily. It's just, it doesn't have the same impact as the original one did. Mm-hmm. It is kind of shocking, though, with Last House on the Left, because I was expecting them to be somewhat close, but Craven almost in parts, like, directly rips from this movie. It, it's interesting. We'll talk about that more as we, we get into the movie, but but did you have any initial thoughts that you wanted to say before we jump into it more? Well, this is significant to me, not necessarily for the movie itself that we're discussing or about to, but just in that, you know, I didn't know who Bergman was three plus years ago for my whole life (laughs) three plus years ago and it was significant once I delved into and of course the only reason I really did or I got exposed to it was because you know Criterion released this mega huge box set and anytime they do something like that I have to look into it like especially if I don't have no idea who the person is the director or or if I'm unfamiliar with the movies so I had I read up a lot on it 
uh, just to figure out why is this why is this humongous box set coming around. And I just kept reading about who's this guy, Igmar Bergman, and why is he famous um, in movie circles. And I was intrigued by everything I read. Um, and I couldn't even imagine, because I ordered it, of course, the set, you know, blindly, aside from reading about Ingmar Bergman. And I didn't even know what to expect when I would pop in the first movie, because I don't know that I've ever seen a Swedish movie. Maybe one, like a modern one, but I certainly didn't know what old black and white Swedish movies would be like. I kept reading why he was so amazing, but I didn't know how that would actually translate on screen um, in any movie of his. So, you know, and, and I'll be honest too, and I'm, I'm not gonna waste our time with my whole backstory with Bergman, but um, I was following the viewing list that's suggested in the box, which is not necessarily chronological, but at the beginning it is of the list. Uh, it tends to veer towards his earliest films um, in the late 30s. Uh, I think it's late 30s uh, or maybe early 40s but those movies seem like you they seem nondescript uh, I mean kind of like watching the earliest Kubrick you can't necessarily spot that there's a genius here um, behind the camera you know it, you could have told me it was just some random movie from 42 from Sweden like not not particularly significant and and that's how I kind of felt with some of those first ones I viewed. But then I finally got to a point toward the interesting stuff I started seeing. And then it came into focus to me that this guy is a genius on so many levels uh, when it comes to the movie making. Not necessarily the direction, but he writes most all his movies. And I think that's where the genius starts, is in the writing. Um, and, and then it goes from there. Anywho, I've never done a podcast on any Bergman movie because I don't really know anybody who's watched any Bergman films. Um, if listeners remember Sean from recently, I mean, Sean loves movies just like I do, and I believe he's only seen one Bergman movie to date, and he didn't really care for it, and it didn't really motivate him to want to watch any more. I'm sure he will eventually, I hope, but he's literally only seen one himself, and he saw that movie in the last year. Um, and I don't know anybody else who would really have any interest and then so you know you're the willing the willing uh participant you know, even though this is your own show uh you're the willing participant <laughs> and, and here we are and i'm just so excited because i've been wanting to talk about any of his movies for these last three years so here we go yeah and you hadn't seen this one prior to this right correct this would have been in my order like six more down the line from where i was so no i had not seen this movie completely fresh yeah, and i'm definitely curious to check out some other ones after seeing this because yeah I, the first viewing because I, I watched it twice for this the first viewing was kind of unfortunate because i only got to watch half of it and then i watched half of it two days later okay so i wasn't um super impressed i liked it and i thought there was some interesting um kind of fairy tale aspects to it but i liked it a whole lot more in the second viewing and why do you think that was a lot of it came together more well, one, um, just the fact that I broke it up into two viewings, I always feel like that kind of pulls you out of the mood of the movie. You have to kind of like try to resettle yourself in. Okay. So it's just always kind of a bad way to start for me. But yeah, I, I just feel like some of it, maybe knowing where it went more, kind of shaded some things in a bit of a different light, which helped. 
particularly that weird old man in the uh, the hut. Yes. yes. <laughs> like that, I viewed very differently on the second viewing. How did you view it? Well, briefly, how did you view it the first time, and then how did you view it the second time? Well, just the first viewing, um, there was kind of like that turn where it's like, oh, this is just like kind of a weird hermit, but like whatever, he's just some hermit. And then eventually it's like, oh, wait, this guy isn't some hermit. Like, what the fuck is he? And I was like, is this like an embodiment of Odin? Like, what is this? In the second viewing from the start, there's like a more ominous vibe to him. And so it kind of shaded this whole scene differently. So here's the thing. Also, that's hard to explain. Not just to you, but to anyone listening. Because I, I would doubt that anyone listening to this podcast has seen a Bergman movie. Or maybe there's one person or two, but there, there can't be many. Um, I, I would venture to guess. And even if you have seen one or two, uh, as I've told you before offline, you need to watch multiple of his films and then, and then the picture will start to become clear. Because when you just watch one of his movies... Well, there's some that are just that good on their own, to be fair. But but it's like... Did you ever read the book? Um, I can't remember if it was Jurassic Park or The Lost World. But in one of the books, um, like as you would go through certain chapters, like there was like a digitized image. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Yeah, I can't remember if that's the second or the first. I feel like it's the first. They both have kind of a similar way about that but either way but do you remember that you see like some cubes or something like that and then as you progress in the book like it's like you're pulling away and, and the cubes get smaller but then you start to see there's an image mm-hmm. um well i feel like looking at bergman's work and he has i don't know approximately nearly 50 movies um when you watch your first one whichever one it is it's like you're just looking at a pixel and the more you watch, the more you're getting more pixels of the whole image. And so, and then it, then you start to understand the big picture when you see multiple of his movies. Um, and so that's why I think it's just extremely hard just to come in on this director on anything because you're only seeing a small little slice. Um, whereas uh, you just pick a really great Spielberg or Hitchcock movie, you, you kind of get it already in a way, which would, whichever one you choose, um, you, you get why that movie is significant but but Bergman is is tough 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 and when you I think when you watch one of his movies and you're you're not prepared for him um and you're not used to his style his movies come off as deceptively simple I would say as a general statement very deceptively simple but they're not and this is certainly not a simple movie even though it seems like it on its face with the plot and everything. I don't know, because I've only watched the movie one time, uh, and I delved into some of the supplements on the Criterion disc, but I didn't get through all of them. Uh, but I would think now that the Hermit, he's he's the anti-Tor. I don't know how to pronounce their names, but Tor is the Max von Zito character, uh, the father, the patriarch of the the main family um and i think the hermit is the anti version of the foil of him yeah i mean that's i would definitely put that yeah agree but but even even more than that um tor is because i'm assuming people listening have no idea what this movie's about 
uh, unless they know the house on the left. Yeah, I'd hope they'd watch it because we're going to spoil the whole thing. Oh, oh, then we're going to spoil it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you said that or the opposite. Um, so the movie opens and it mostly focuses on this family and tours. Like I said, it's the patriarch. He's the father of the family. Um, and it's a, it's a small family, but they have servants and whatnot. So they're doing okay in a way. Uh, and 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 Tor and his wife are are quite devout Christians. Oh, also this is a period piece, and it takes place in Swedish medieval times, perhaps in the 13th century. They don't really say exactly, but it's meant to be sometime like that. And um, and they're um, devout Christians. And historically, Sweden at this time period was was very divided in religion there was people who were still attached to the more pagan um religion and and still worshipped um odin uh and then there was the christians even though i i read or heard that christianity had come like in the 900s to sweden but at this time period they were there was still a division and people were on either side and apparently there was a lot of strife in the country because of this at the time um and so Tor is very much the Christian family father man, and the hermit is he, he's he's a, a worshiper or subscribes to Odin and the paganism. But you were you were just saying that you felt that he was more than perhaps just a foil. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, I I get the impression that he's not even necessarily human. He's kind of like the witch in the forest type of deal. Yeah. Because that one scene when she like runs around, he kind of moves from the the place without actually moving. So he's almost like just this figure of evil, the embodiment of that pagan kind of god or pagan evil. I'm not sure how to. Yes, and I was thinking when you were just hinting to that, I was thinking maybe he's almost like an acolyte of Odin in a way, or he could almost be like a stand-in. I or I could almost envision him as being like yeah. like how they always talk about Zeus taking human form to mingle around humans that almost is like a human stand-in for odin perhaps or just a representative uh, i don't know what do you call yeah just representative i would think but yeah the norse religion. but it doesn't really matter <laughs> either way he's this kind of figure of evil mm-hmm. hanging over mm-hmm. but they have they have i didn't know this until i watched some of the listen oh, the commentary i've only listened to two or three on the bergman discs they are phenomenal um and it was pointed out in this commentary that um, Tor has his I forget what it's called but sort of like his little throne chair made out of wood but there's a there's a more proper term for it um, in Sweden and it's it's his you know his big chair uh, where he sits at the table the dinner table and it's adorned with some um, Christian iconic iconography and and hermit man has his own which has his own mm-hmm. um, Norse uh, iconography in it as well yeah it's like the perverse uh, inverted version mm-hmm. or something it was it was cool i like mm-hmm. that yes and in tours is more a traditional orderly home and and um i don't know i wish i knew the hermit's name but his his place is is, is you know like like it's intertwined with nature um with the water and the trees it's it's like within like built within it's almost it almost reminds me of like the children in uh in game of thrones in the series like when we get to their habitat up north i'm not sure if i got that far 
You ever got that far <laughs> in Game of Thrones? That would have been season five, six. Yeah, I watched at the end of the... Yep, that's where I stopped season four. I finished that season. I didn't get past it. Oh, eventually they get to where the children are, and it's very reminiscent of... Or think of Radagast the Brown in the Hobbit movies. His dwelling. Oh, yeah. Something like okay. that. Yeah, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw this out here. I, I don't really know if it has much relation, but I just kept thinking about it when I was watching this. But did you ever see Black Angel, the uh, short film that they played before The Empire Strikes Back in uh, Europe? What? Yeah, it came out when The Force Awakens came out because they thought it was lost for years. But you're saying it originally, it originally screened before Empire Strikes Back in England? Is that what you're suggesting? Yep. Never heard of this. Yeah, and so when we did all of our commentaries back in the day. We watch them back to back kind of recreate that that's amazing and i've never heard of that oh yeah definitely check it out it's only like maybe 20 minutes or so mm-hmm. it's a really cool little surrealist short film and just something about the vibe of it kept making me think of this i'm not sure why but it's been a couple years since i last saw it but <laughs> i just figured i'd mention it since i kept thinking about it no i got you and then also since this is your first burger movie this is most unlike <laughs> the other 10 i've seen uh, which again is it's amazing i did get that impression from uh things i've heard about this. and it's all but it is but there is one that it's most similar to of the ones i've seen and and the one that is um the seventh seal which came out mm-hmm. i don't know what three four years prior to this so they weren't that far apart but that's the only one that i've seen that has remotely a similar vibe as this movie even though they're they're different uh, but, but that's the closest cousin of the Bergmans I've seen so far. And I remember, and one of the things that, if you've seen The Seventh Seal or if you saw it, one of the things that will connect the two for you right off the bat is just some of the incidental music you hear. Um, and I remember thinking it was weird, the music, when I saw it in Seventh Seal and then noticing it again at the beginning of this movie. Um, but now I know from the commentary that that music is based upon medieval Swedish music. So, you know, it was chosen for a reason. I didn't know. I just thought they picked it because it sounded good in the, in the late fifties, but no, there was actually a purpose to that. I'll quickly make an admission. Um, I usually do a lot more research for a podcast than I did for this one. I just kept running at a time. And so I struggled to uh, get the time to sit down and look up things about oh, this. You're fine. But this was based off of a, uh, an old Swedish ballad, right? Uh, did, did you look up anything about that? Yes, which I did not know until I did my own little micro-research. And that's very interesting, too, because, I don't know, it, it's it's not even very long, the ballad. Um, but, I don't know, I don't know if you looked it up, did you want me to tell you the, the little story? It's very similar, there's just some key differences. Yeah, I meant to do it today, and I just didn't get the chance, so no, I haven't looked it up yet. So, it's not very long. I mean, it, it's only, I don't know, it's... It's like the length of like two sonnets or something, or one long sonnet. Uh, it's it's the same basic story and everything, but um, the pregnant woman character doesn't exist, does not exist in the ballad. It's just um, the daughter. Well, actually, there's there's three daughters. Uh, Tor has three daughters in the ballad, and they're going off to town. Uh, I think maybe again for the church or whatever. And they're going in the, in the woods and they're accosted by these three highwaymen, as they call them. Um, and then the three sisters get decapitated by the highwaymen and they take some of their clothing. Um, 
and then the highwaymen continue on and unknowingly, um, you know, they're looking for a place to stay and they happen upon uh, the home of the three sisters. And I can't remember how it happens, but, oh, I, I think it's because of the garments again. Um, you know, they, they show the garments to um, Tor and, and, and he realizes what's going on. And of course he kills them. Oh no, he kills two of them. And there's one left of the, the three highwaymen. Um, and, and he's saying, like, who are you people? Where did you come from? Like, how could you do this? Like, this horrible thing. Um, and the one survivor, he says, well, the three of us are brothers and we were cast out when we were young by our parents. Um, and, you know, we were left to just survive or die, whatever. We were kicked, you know, we just cast out into the into the nature in the world when we were young and then he says uh name your parents who are these people and he names them and it turns out their names are tor and his wife and then tor has this realization that he's just killed two of his sons and now because of everything that happened and to repent he um he builds the church uh or he says he's going to oh and also when the three sisters get decapitated three springs rise up from their their corpses but i thought that was that was an interesting twist at the end of the ballad because it was almost like a little old boy moment or like a little twilight zone Shyamalan twist at the end dun, dun, dun. so that, that was interesting but there, there you go that's pretty much the whole story right there in the ballad yeah that is interesting it's it's also interesting in this how the mom keeps saying how karen's the only kid that she has left giving the impression that maybe she had some other ones that maybe died that's or... what i thought too but they don't really fully explain that uh oh gosh i wish they knew these characters names um i mean i'm, I'm looking at the list but i don't know what name goes to who is ingiri the pregnant woman pregnant woman yep okay and you know what's her relationship to karen i mean at the start of the movie yeah i, I kept wondering because I, I thought initially that she would have like grown up on the, the farm like she was the child of one of the other people who works there and maybe she grew up to be bitter towards karen because they all dotted on her and then and gary was kind of looked down yeah, on actually oh but, but later on I, I get the impression that that's not the case and that she just came to work for them just like everyone else so so I, I gleaned something from the commentary and now in this moment while we're recording i just thought of the perfect analogy or it'll make it very clear because she is like a servant, it's true, in Gary, but she's also, she was a foster child of, of Tor, so probably not a blood relation, but taken to the family when she's a young girl and raised as like the um, foster sister to Karen. And I just realized the perfect comparison is it's the exact relationship that Loki has with Thor, like in the Marvel films. It's, that's exactly what it is. Karen is Thor, the blood um progeny of tor and uh and inkiri is the loki and you even have the hair color differentiation and she has the same bitter type jealousy feelings uh intentionally in the movie inkiri does uh with her relationship with karen yeah interesting exactly what it is and they're meant to be opposites not just in their hair color which is the obvious difference but of course um karen represents like chastity and innocence and purity and she's still a girl who's 
meant to be like just on the cusp of prepubescence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, a virgin, you know, the title of the movie. Uh, and Giri, by the simple fact that she's pregnant, and they don't really explain how she got pregnant. Well, we all know there was sex involved. But, I mean, they don't explain who the father was. They don't explain if if it was content, consensual. Um, it's left open I to I thought they did kind of at least hint to who it was. And that, yeah, also hinting that maybe it wasn't super consensual. But I thought it was that farmer that they encounter right after they leave the farm. Because um, oh. Karen, like, has that chat with him where she's kind of flirting with him. And then he almost turns it kind of sexual and she gets offended. Then they take off, and then Karen and Ngiri have that chat, and Ngiri's like, how could you talk to him and you danced with him last night? And she seems pretty hurt. And once she sees him, too, she runs over to the horse and looks at him with, like, complete disdain. Ah, uh, see, this is when I wasn't fully paying attention, because I remember parts of the dialogue you're telling me now, and I wasn't able to fully connect them, like, exactly who they were talking about when they were talking about the dance and all that. And, uh, but still, it, regardless... Or irregardless, as I like to say, and people tell me that's not a word. Um, it's still, she's, you know, on paper, she's a defiled woman, whether it was consensual or not. Um, and that's by design. Yeah, and I also thought it was an interesting comparison because it doesn't seem like they're that far off. Like, Karen is kind of a spoiled brat, but she's yes. also kind of riding the line of danger in terms of the way she's interacting with these men. And, like, um, and Gary's like, you know, you could essentially be me eventually, you know, maybe you want to hold out for marriage, but these men could just take you behind the bush. Like, they're stronger than you, so. Well, yeah, um, in, in 13th century terms, in Gary, because her own life experience is woke, <laughs> like, she, her eyes are open to the world, where that's part of the point with Karen is that she has this innocence with blinders yeah i just i thought it was interesting that they didn't portray her as such um kind of a symbol of innocence because she still has that kind of tainted aspect to her she's just not fully in the tainted regard if you want to use that kind of verbiage but <laughs> for uh people who aren't virgins anymore but because it'd been very easy to just paint her as this you know perfect child you know she's not she's got that weird relationship with her uh her parents too where she kind of almost almost plays them against each other in a way well there's a bunch there's a bunch of stuff going on with that family triad right there the father mm-hmm. the mother and the daughter there's a lot going on. and that's the thing bergman movies are quite deceptive um because again i think if you show this movie to the traditional 20 something or younger maybe even 30 something or younger who doesn't invest their lives into breaking down and examining movies i would think that most people would find this movie mostly boring like the 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 non-film lover folk the not we as we used to say (laughs) and so i think they would most regard this movie as boring and then they wouldn't notice the nuances so let's get back to the 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 family triad um so what's the situation there um the mother is jealous of the father why well, I mean, I think she makes it pretty clear that she feels like the only person that she has, and, and kind of the same for the dad, is Karen. Yes. That's kind of both person where they invest their love, not so much to each other. And of course, I know you answered this. I'm just I'm just setting up the question for the sake of the audience. But um, Yeah, the, the prompting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But she's jealous because 
um, it's pretty obvious that Karen has a favorite parent and it's not her mother. And her mother feels like Karen's all she has and so she can't even win her affection. She just feels like she has nothing. And it's so apparent, um, the relationship Karen has with her father and vice versa, it's so apparent that it has other undertones as well. That being that there very well could be some incestuous thoughts there. And I don't know how apparent that was to you, but perhaps it's more apparent when you watch more Bergman movies. I don't know. I did get that impression, but I also thought that in kind of this kind of a dank, you know, not a super nice looking farm. I'm, I'm sure it's nice for the time, but it's some hard living. She's kind of like this spark of extravagance in life. And so they just kind of, they both just kind of um, glom onto her as like this, like I said, spark of life for them. They do. They do. And so they don't really have that for each other. They certainly do. But again, you watch more Bergman movies and you start to see some <laughs> recurring themes. Well, that that could be. I, I did notice <laughs> the incestuous vibe. I just maybe push that aside because I find that stuff kind of disturbing. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. That's the other thing. Uh, the kind of filmmaker Bergman is, kind of like Woody Allen in a way. Well, of course, Woody Allen like worships Bergman. But that aside, when you watch a bunch of Woody Allen films, whichever ones you choose, you get the feeling, you know, that he's speaking through his characters, like his own thoughts. And when his characters debate in the movies, it's probably like him, like having an internal dialogue himself, you know, trying to yeah. sort things out. And, and you get that a lot of the things that happen in Woody Allen movies are based upon whatever's you know, going on in his mind or how he's reflecting on his own life or experiences. You a thousand percent get that when you watch Bergman movies. That this guy, Bergman, is hashing out personal demons. I don't know if he'd call them personal demons because maybe to him it just is what it is. But there's so many themes that he revisits over and over again that it, it's got to be semi-autobiographical. And a lot of it is 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 blatantly semi-autobiographical in other movies. So it makes you wonder how much he thinks about that, like, in, in real life. Hmm. Interesting. Probably not as much as Woody Allen. Oh, jeez. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I love Woody Allen movies. I'm not saying I love Woody Allen, but I love Woody Allen movies. But anyway, yeah, so there's that. Yeah, and she is their prize in everything. Uh... Let's see. Another massive theme in this movie, which is big in many Bergman movies, is just faith. Faith in God. And that's another thing, you, a vibe you get from watching many Bergman movies, Bergman movies is that he probably spends an awful lot of time thinking about this in his own mind. Should I have faith in God or a God? Should I be a faithful man? But then all the ironies that can happen in that, you know. And, and this is very much a biblical type story in that why horrible things happen to quote unquote really good devout people. It's one of the biggest running themes in the Bible. Um, and that's it, it, very much what's going on here. And that's part of what makes the movie tragic and shocking at the same time. Especially if you imagine audiences in 1960 this movie came out in january 1960 just imagine and i don't know how you know maybe maybe i don't know maybe the european audiences may have been more open but you can just imagine how american audiences would have taken a movie like this 
1960. Um, Wasn't this up for an Oscar? I think they said that one of the bonus features. I, again, I didn't really look up. Uh, I think it won an Oscar. Oh, wow. I think it won the Oscar. I have to look right now. I think it won. Yes, it did. It did win an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, actually, which is oh, okay. Hmm. a little shocking just because of how much it pushes the envelope, especially for American audiences. Yeah, that is that is surprising. Oh, good for them, you know? <laughs> it won the Golden Globe as well in the same category. You'd think they wouldn't want to put too much attention on a movie like this, but oh, good, good for them, pushing boundaries. And it's crazy because, because, you know, I'm a big fan of Kubrick, everybody knows that, and Lolita came out in 62 or 63? 62, yeah. And you're familiar with the Hays Code in the United States, yep. historically? And Lolita is, like, still... You know, under the Hayes Code. Amazingly. And, you know, Kubrick bends over backwards to make it work, you know, to meet, you know, um, rating standards. But this movie just sails right past that. And, you know, it's two years its predecessor. So that's just wild. Well, the Hayes Code wouldn't have affected this movie. But, I mean, maybe the American versions. But still, if, if all the movies are playing by those rules in the United States and then you watch this, I mean, holy smokes. Yeah, that's certainly that's certainly fair. But yeah, it was definitely different in Europe. Like, have you ever seen the movie um, Peeping Tom? Came out the same year. And of course, Psycho. But yeah, Peeping Tom also gets pretty. Uh, it's pretty shocking for 1960. But yeah, but have you seen Lolita Kubrick's Lolita? Oh yeah, yeah, Lolita's great. I was gonna say what makes it so fun is that it plays within the bounds of the code. But it does as much as it can to dance around it or or march right up to the line without crossing it. And it, I don't know, this is a side topic, uh, but <laughs> Kubrick plays with that. And see, none of that, none of that playfulness and and extra hidden innuendo. It wouldn't exist if the Hayes Code Hayes Code didn't exist. So in a way, mm -hmm. it makes it more interesting of a movie. Because you have to constantly read between the lines. And that's actually what makes it fun to me when I continue to rewatch it in modern times. Is how much he's dancing all over the Hayes Code. He had a real sense of humor in those early 60s. I don't know what happened. They kind of drain out of his movies at a certain point. but Well, it gets more dry and dark, the humor. Um, yeah. Rather than being playful. Oh, but just a, a minor point on Lolita. The, uh, what was that guy's name? The professor in it, who's like all into Lolita. Yes, the famous actor. Yeah, I just recently saw him in A Star Is Born, the uh, '50s version. Mm, yeah, and I right, kept being right. like, why? Why do I get such a creepy vibe from this dude? Like, what about him's making me feel oh, like he's gosh. a creep? And I was like, oh, it's because he's in Lolita. <laughs> he's the creep in Lolita. <laughs> There's a movie I can't name yet because because it's yet to be announced that we're gonna do a podcast on it, but it stars oh. that same actor. And because I'm mostly familiar with him from Lolita, like I have that baggage going into that movie, the other movie. And so all I think is that he's he's the guy from Lolita, but he's trying to hide it. I mean, that's just what I get because <laughs> I can't separate it. And so he comes off exactly what you're saying in this other movie that I don't want to name yet. Um, Poor so, guy. <laughs> I know, but... Because he's like, great in Lolita. He's great in *A Star Is Born*. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and I know he's a famous actor for many other things. But now I'm starting to think: is he just because his role is a bit of a creep, putting it lightly in the movie I'm talking about? And so now I'm almost feel like that's like his thing, even though I'm sure 
that's not all he does. His creeps. Yeah, it, it could have been. Maybe that was. Maybe by the time he made Lolita, he was kind of known for that. So who, who knows? But anyway. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> back to the Virgin Spring. So I mean, I told the audience, you know, the ballad, and the movie follows that storyline pretty well. Um, Karen and Ngiri go off to. Um, they need to go place some candles at the at the church or chapel in town. Uh, and so they're going on this day journey uh, to go do that. Karen is wearing some of her Sunday finest because she just wants <laughs> to look pretty and extravagant like that. Um, they run into the weird hermit. And then um, these three highwaymen, I'll call them because that's what they call them constantly in the special features. These three highwaymen, these like two older men and a younger boy, these ruffians. Well, Karen doesn't see him that way. Uh, but she's saying that she's going to go have a little picnic. And do, do they want to join her? And so they do. And as an audience, you kind of already know where this is going. But Karen doesn't. Um, the three guys, you know, they take advantage of her. They accost her. And, it, and it's, for 1960 standards, quite savage and quite brutal. Um, and they basically have their way with her. Um, and once they're done, uh, I mean, they essentially kill her right there. And Ingiri gets to witness the whole thing. Yeah, I think that's a big element we gotta, because back in the the cabin with the creepy old man, you know, he essentially, once Karen's gone, he starts talking to her like, hey, you know what? Like, it's time to answer that prayer that you had earlier this morning. Like, I've got three dead men he calls them up in the mountain waiting for, which I thought was quite interesting that he called them that. Yes. And then she gets all freaked out. It's like, oh, fuck, I better run and try to stop this. But she's too late. But, yeah, what do you think about those three? Like, what, what kind of impression did you get from them? I don't know. I mean, it's... I mean, I don't feel like I have anything to say other than what there is at face value. Yeah, I almost got, like, the three of them were, like, a sort of composite person. Okay. Because there's, like, the one... Because only really one of them is talkative. Only one of them really seems to... uh like have the identity of, of himself okay i see exactly what you're saying yeah the kid's almost like a weird kind of the innocent element of them and then transferred into innocence lost yes then you have the one dude who can't even speak he's like almost the bestial yes aspect and i couldn't quite get exactly because i didn't have enough time <laughs> to really ponder it too much but i i feel like there was more going on there than i really quite understood well, what he was trying to say you're absolutely right. Uh, I agree with everything you said about a composite. And, I mean, at first glance, they're a bit of a master blaster. <laughs> oh, nice bit reference. Of, yes, they're a bit of a master blaster, and you get, like, one has the brains and the speech, and the other one's the muscle. Kind of like Krang in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Who's um, also but... the first one who looks like he has a thought to rape her, like, immediately when he sees her. Right, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the boy represents the innocence, and the, the bestial one is that part, and then the guy is more the center. They're an evil triumvirate, you know, just like the whole Kirk Spock McCoy or the Harry uh, Weasley Hermione. They're, they're exact, but they're just a, a demented, twisted underworld uh, triumvirate. They are like the three parts of a person, uh, expresses three separate people. Um, hmm. 
hashing this out now in real time. Yeah, because you're right, because they very well could represent a single person. I mean, it seems very clear that now that you say it, uh, that it, it is a single character expressed, um, distilled to the three elements. Yeah, the I mean, it's very fitting for this kind of fairy tale vibe of the story, but I didn't exactly get what maybe the reason for that was, but maybe it was more just a feeling kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes with these kind of directors, I never know. That's a, such a good question as, as to why. That is such a damn good question. Yeah, I know with um, like Alejandro Jodorowsky, his movies, he almost designs them to defy any sort of analysis. It's almost more like, just what does this make you feel when you see this image? Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes I don't know if other filmmakers have the same feeling or if they're really trying to get you to ponder. Well, you're making me think of something I thought about because I listened to one of the special features is just um, Bergman gave me a lecture like in 1971 to the American Film Institute. Uh, there's no visual. You just hear the audio. And, well, it's, it's a lecture except um, people are asking questions along the way as well. And one of the audience members asks, you know, what guides like your choices in your movies? You know, you know, what is it you think about or, you know, when you're trying to say what you're trying to say visually or in the script, whatever. And all he says in response is, he's like, I don't, he's like, I don't put anything into it. <laughs> he's like, I don't put any thought into it. He said, all she or she's like, what's your process? You know, how do you come up with this stuff? And he just said, I don't do anything. He said, I just go with my gut and I just go with what seems right. He said, I don't plan anything. I don't draw anything up. I just go with my gut. That's all. But <laughs> when you're watching the commentary and the commentator is breaking down everything in every frame from the very beginning of the movie and all the double meaning and, and the significance of all the minutia, see, that's where Bergman movies are crazy because you don't see it the first time. But then when you hear someone explain it, and you go, holy shit, this is your gut? I mean, that's, in that's insane, because your gut has a doctorate in filmmaking and storytelling and, and poeticism. If this is all just his, like, that's, that's a, he's lying. Or he's, he's intentionally being vague. Like, that is like the most untrue thing, I think, for him to say that it's all just his gut. Unless he's saying it's his gut that leads him to choose all the little things he's doing intentionally that's the only way i think it makes any sense like one little thing that i would never know except for the commentator says it at the very beginning of the movie in the i don't know if it's the little barn or what that place is in the in the in the homestead um one of the first things we see is in, Gar in gary there's a fire and i can't remember if she's getting it started or what but the flames are going and she's blowing the flames and the commentator's explaining that in, in, in Sweden, when you blow a fire, that's like a specific type of literary symbol that means um, it means the coming of something good and something bad. Uh, there's tons of, but there's, see, there's tons of imagery like that that means nothing to us, you and I, because we have no context yeah. at all. But then when you hear the commentator go through i listened to the commentary partially on this movie and i listened to the whole commentary on the seventh seal and that one blows me away because there is something like that in every 20 seconds throughout the entire run of this movie 
there's something that you wouldn't even notice. Uh, there's a part, oh, right just after the flame, uh, and Gary just stands up and she just has like a concerned look and she puts her hands around the wooden beam that is holding up, I guess, the roof of the building internally. Then they're explaining that that's a thing in, in Swedish storytelling as well. Like, that always means something when someone puts their hands on the beam. Like, uh, it has something to do with showing, um, of feeling trapped uh, or encased. Um, and see, to us, it just looks like someone resting onto a beam. You don't think that there's more going on there. That's what I'm saying. This is a hell of a gut that uh, Bergman has. See, I just thought she was doing that because that's where the sky was open, so she get called to Odin. That's that's all I thought it was doing. But yeah, I love little things like that. Yeah, but but no, no, but it fits with what you just said though, because that's the whole point. She feels her character feels that she's been trapped her whole life. She's never been able to be a real person because she's considered such lower class, especially compared to her, you know, beloved, beautiful foster sister. Um, and so she feels like she has a trapped existence. And then that's obviously the beam and everything. And then, of course, that lead, that's what leads her to call to Odin. Um, because she feels like that's the only thing she has. Yeah, and of course, Karen seems to get away with the same behavior that she might have had. And everyone doubts on her and treats her so well. And they just shit on her like, oh, look what your life choices have gotten for you. Now you're pregnant. They should have just thrown you out. And again, these are all the, the tales as old as time as I've started to say in recent years <laughs> it's you know it's it's everything i mean it's not everything it's it's of course it's cain and abel which of course which 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 is what loki and thor is it's what it's always about the jealousy and the feeling like you have this injustice that's upon you and then you feel like that that in turns emboldened like you feel emboldened by the universe because you've been tread upon so that you feel like you have the right to now go further because you've been dealt a rotten hand in life and i just love any kind of movie it doesn't have to be bergman i just love it anything that deals into these these issues that humans have thought about for millennia and beyond i, I just love movies any stories that get into that kind of stuff because you know it's, it's star wars stuff <laughs> big ideas in simple stories just as we we're talking about in that's another character I kept trying to think what she's supposed to represent, and I couldn't quite, couldn't quite, quite come up with anything. You couldn't come up with anything. What do you mean? <laughs> I mean, she's like this. She's pregnant. Um, she, she blames herself for causing the assault on Karen. Yes. And in the universe of the movie, she is kind of at fault for it. Yes. So I was kind of like, what, what? I wonder what they're trying to say with this. I, I just didn't know. <laughs> Can't draw blanks. No, I don't, what I mean, of course, and then she tries to, well, she, she she sends a prayer to Odin. She's basically trying to cast a spell. The toad is a symbol, mm -hmm. you know, for uh, witchcraft and, and pagan ways. And it's meant to be like a curse. Of course, the men taste the toad just before their crime. There's got to be some meaning there. Um that maybe that's the thing that sets them off. You know, I mean, uh, not literally, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but even before they taste the toad, um, Karen says something that really sets them off. Uh, on the goat, she says that it looks like it has the sign of um, Simon of Snaltis? How do I say that? <laughs> I have no idea what that is. Yeah, she, like, 
because that creepy guy who can't speak, she seems like she's having like an airy time. She's making up her little uh, kind of fantasy of what her homestead is with her father, who's the king, and they have all those battlements. But then any time the bestial one would talk, she would get like this look of like sensing that she was in danger. Mm-hmm. But then the regular one would speak, and then she'd be like, oh, things don't seem so bad. I'll go back to my kind of fantasy. Okay, that sounds very significant to me, what you're saying. Yeah, I thought so too. But then the bestial one said something, and she got spooked and grabbed hold of their goat. And she was like, these look like the mark of Simon of Snultis. Snultas? Oh, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, and I was like, I wonder what that is. I tried to look it up, and I couldn't find anything. Oh, I know what it is now. Oh, I don't know what... Oh, I sure. don't know what Stultus is, but I know how it fits into the story now. You reminded me. Oh, sure. Yeah, tell me. I'm, I'm very curious. <laughs> because the guys were saying that they're like herdsmen and they're like taking these these cattle, not cattle, but whatever you call goats. <laughs> like they're taking them, you know, <laughs> they raise them and they're going to go sell them or do whatever they're going to do with them. But then when she sees the mark, she realizes that they stole them from a neighborhood farm or a neighboring farm, wow. I should say. So she realizes they're lying. Okay, there we go. And so now she realizes, uh-oh. Yeah, I thought it was some sort of more significant thing, but yeah, that makes sense. Just signify that they're de- deceivers. Yes, and I, but I like what you just said preceding that, because that's so perfect, because I didn't think about it until you said it, how she felt un- uneasy when the bestial one was speaking and then the, the sensible one. And I mean, that perfectly, that's perfectly, uh, that's a perfect metaphor for just when a woman is getting courted by any any man if we get heteronormative mm. and uh <laughs> and how girls can sense red flags or you know anyone can with their significant other but then the significant other yeah it says some fancy words sings a different tune says the right thing yeah we're gonna you know we're gonna go take our little vacation and then they they forget about the red flag and they and they cast it aside even though they know it's there um they they somehow just dismiss it it's perfect. Yeah, it's a beautifully done moment, I thought. Just all the performances, and her in particular, but even the the two men, yeah, really, really sold that scene well. And then once you that, they all... I'll see, and this is the thing. I already enjoyed the movie already, but of course this conversation is just elevating it so much. <laughs> yeah, the second viewing, I was like, yeah, this movie... Like, the first one, I liked it. The second viewing, I was like, yeah, now this, there's something here that's that I need to see again. Yes. And, you know, just having this conversation, of course, I have the movie playing. But now that I'm thinking of these characters, the, the, the evil triumvirate, and thinking of them as a composite of a person, when you have that now in your mind, as I do, and you watch the movie, it is ever more clear that you're exactly right. I'm at the part of the movie where um, one of the servants, the elderly lady, is just, well, the boy's feeling ill or something, and, and she's trying to take care of him. And when you see the other two, their reactions, it's it feels like. Uh, have you seen the Inside Out, the Pixar movie? Yep. It is like they are three parts of like, like the Inside Out inside the character's head. And when you see their reactions, it's like they are those little, those little. Um, I don't know what you want to call them. Uh, those little embodiments of the person, and the way they react to what's happening, and, and how she's how she feels. Um, the servant woman feels like pity and compassion for for the boyish uh one and uh mm-hmm. it's it, it, see now it just it just reframes the whole movie everything we're talking about that 
it's going to change it when I watch it all the way through for the second time. Yeah, that's how I felt with the second viewing throughout. Like, almost every scene I felt like was shaded in a different light. Yeah. Which is really cool. There you go. I mean, that's... You're starting to understand. Because <laughs> this, this pretty much happens, like, in all his movies. When you really start to take them seriously and start to analyze them. But they're deceptively simple on, on first glance. Yeah, that, that's how that's how a lot of surrealist movies are, I think. Because I would almost frame this as a surrealist movie in a way, because it's just so... Well, see, especially when we start talking about it, but Bergman has other movies that are just overtly surrealist, but then he has others that don't seem surreal, or they just seem straight-up dramas, but that doesn't mean they are. Mm -hmm. They just come off that way. Yeah, I, I think I know what you're saying, even though I haven't seen those movies. I, I can get what you're saying just from framing it from other yeah, so you just think, oh, this is just another random movie from the early '40s done by another director, um, and, and you. And if, so if you don't have your thinking cap on, you might just think, oh, this was just a regular Saturday matinee, you know, at the picture show. <laughs> if you didn't, if I didn't tell you, oh, this is Bergman. You, you, if, you, if you weren't savvy to that, you might, you might not pay attention. You wouldn't realize that there's so much more going on. Yeah, I just wanted to point out because I restarted the movie and now it's on the scene with the creepy hermit. Man, that's a that's a creepy ass scene, man. Just something about the way he looks and especially the way Gary reacts to him. Watching it during this discussion, he has the gnarliest, weirdest looking uh, under chin growth that I've <laughs> ever seen. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, they did a great job making that actor look creepy as fuck. Yes. Just the set design of this place, really, really cool. Yes, and it, it represents so much. Um, I mean, I felt like the stream was very significant because who has a stream going under their home, and like the meaning of water and air, fire, wind. Uh, you know, it's it's just oh man. It, I just have to watch the whole movie again and really, really pay attention and listen to the entire commentary. Yeah, this is definitely one that I'm going to be picking up on Blu-ray. Uh, relatively soon so I can listen to those commentaries too because that sounds pretty interesting oh it's fantastic Plus all the details that you you could never get just watching it because you don't know the, the context of the time and of course when they eat the family they don't eat the family but when the family eats um, you know it's that was very obvious the whole last supper motif Yeah. well there's the first <laughs> supper and then there's the last supper and of course ironically it is the last supper for at least three of the characters at the table. Yeah, just the framing of it, it's very, very clear what they're trying to do there. Oh my gosh, I need to look something up right now. Keep talking, I need to do some real-time research on something. I'm curious to get to the end. Were the three of them, the three men, were they holding hands as they went to the table? So I'm sure you're around that part. I don't know. I'm a little bit past that part now. But why? I know there's a lot of scenes where they're just so linked. I just think that's a interesting way to signal to the audience that these are very much one entity i agree with you completely so something that struck me right now uh just now in the conversation because i was looking at the image on screen and at the part of the movie i'm at there's a big close-up on, on the big crucifix at the homestead and you know you know what a crucifix is and it's, it's a large one and of course Above Christ's head on the crucifix are the letters INRI, which many are familiar with, even if you don't know what it means. You know, that's a thing there. And I was just looking at it, and of course, if you read it out loud, I guess it would be pronounced INRI. 
And I and I just had this moment, this thought right here as you were talking, like, that sounds like Ingiri. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's anything to that. I kept thinking that too, and I meant to look up what the connection was, but I just forgot. I didn't think that until just now. So I went to go look it up, and you know, and I kind of knew this before, but INRI, it stands for, it's like an acronym, it stands for the Latin words, um, which, I'm not going to say the Latin, but it translates into um, um, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's basically what the Latin words translate into. Um, oh, okay. And I, I knew that more or less. But then I thought, okay, so what does that mean um, as far as it pertains to the character? And on first glance, nothing, well, perhaps. But I had to look up what does that mean to religious people? Like, how do they interpret that? sign uh being above christ's head and according to this uh by some it is interpreted as okay so pontius pilate he's the one who posted that above christ you know kind of as to mock him because look here's the king of the jews and look he's up on the cross you know mockery but according to this thing i you know random research that now it signifies to people um christians that here lies uh, a true Christian. That's how they interpret that phrase now, um, INRI. And that is perfect for the Ingeri character because her character is one who doesn't believe in Christ at all or Christianity at the beginning of the movie. She's obviously, she obviously prays to Odin. Um, but throughout the ordeal of this movie, you could argue that she becomes a convert uh, a believer, not necessarily, you know, that she has faith in Christianity, but she becomes a more woke to Christianity. What Christianity symbolizes in the movie, as the modern or orderly tradition uh, or, or religion, I should say, when juxtaposed to paganism, at least as it's portrayed in the movie, as it often is, that one's old-fashioned and backwards, um, and one is is the way or the light, and you could say that Ingiri has a religious transformation of sorts by the end of this movie. Yeah, I, I can kind of see that in the way that she kind of aids, uh, is it Tor, the dad? Mm -hmm. Max von Sydow's character? Like aiding him in his, uh, I guess you could say almost righteous vengeance, although I don't think it's quite meant to be portrayed that way. But she does kind of own up to her mistakes and try to beg forgiveness in a way, but I don't, I don't fully see what you're saying, but maybe I would see it more on a rewatch. I mean, it's just, just that. I'm not saying that she wakes up at the end of the movie and she's like, thank you, Christ, I now believe you. That's not what I'm saying. But her character arc in the movie is that she's in the dark, yes? In the beginning, however you want to interpret being in the dark. And you can interpret it that many different ways. Whether it's sad or depressed or in a dark place or in a place where life and things seem obscured. However you want to define dark. And by the end, she sees a light. And you can define light however you want to define it. Whether, whether you, If you're religious, you can say she's found God. Or you can take that in a more secular sense, is that she's found her way. Or she now sees the light, not necessarily of God, but just of goodness in the world. Where she saw no goodness before. Or potential for goodness. Or living a good life. Whereas in the beginning, she felt no reason to live a good life. Or... See, I'm mixing the religious terms with secularism, but when I say godliness or Christianity, I mean living like 
like a good moral person because she's a person without morality at the beginning yeah no don't see it it's yeah (laughs) now now i'm just my brain's stuck just thinking about all the implications of of that it's hard for me to put it into words but but think about it though well again if you watch more burger movies you'll see it again and again because it always happens that there's a character who struggles with their faith in one way or the other and again you don't have to look at it as literal religious faith if you don't want to because it still works if you look at it secularly (laughs) because you can understand a person you could know who just the whole world is shit no matter what no matter what subject you bring up or what's going on and they cannot see good in anything and then you could imagine if somehow through whatever means doesn't have it doesn't need to have anything to do with religion could be therapy could be whatever um or it could be just meeting a good person that helps them find meaning you could see how someone could find the light which just means finding a bright side finding something to be happy about to care about whatever it is it doesn't need to be religion it's just i'm just saying it metaphorically yeah i've actually skipped to the end to see how she reacts to tor's proclamations about him building that church i want to see what her reactions are to that yes i'm very interested i'm not going to zoom ahead but i'm very interested in that as well yeah just because i kind of skipped past the uh, the rape scene to go back to the the hermit yeah that was a, a very compelling moment in the movie and just um kind of the reaction afterwards by the three men where like she was walking around kind of weeping and they're just sitting around reflectively that's the moment that Wes Craven completely ripped from uh, this movie into Last House on the Left that was actually one of my favorite moments of the movie because once the horrible rape scene's done you see all the perpetrators of it just kind of sitting around looking at each other like fuck what did we just do and I always thought that was a really unique moment for an exploitation film but he just ripped it from this so sure <laughs> But not as impressive as I thought. <laughs> there are tons of things ripped from Bergman movies in popular directors' works that you don't even realize. I've seen quite a few on my way going through these movies. Things that you would just you just realize that all these famous directors we know, like household names like Scorsese and Kubrick and um, Allen and and many others, uh, Wes Anderson. How you just realize, oh, these guys must have watched a lot of Bergman movies. Because you see these things that cannot be coincidental, like what you're talking about right now. Oh, I just saw the scene where he picked her up and the spring came out from her head. That was definitely a moment that I, that the, on my first viewing kind of clued me in like, oh, this is more of a surrealist piece than I realized well, when I was initially watching it. I suppose. But it struck me because, you know, I, I watched a fair amount of Swedish things, not just Bergman, or Swedish related things or Swedish adjacent things in the last couple years. And in most of those things, um, for people who live up there in the Scandinavian areas, um, spring is almost always a metaphor used in a different way in all these different Swedish-inspired things I've watched. Um, it, usually has to, it usually represents, of course, seasons and, and passages of time, usually, or, or stages of life. Um, and so I kept going into this movie thinking the title Virgin Spring would have something to do with what I just said. I mean, the spring element. <laughs> and I had no idea it would be a literal spring. That was the last thing in my mind. And so that was a, a pleasant surprise to me, that reveal, if you will. Because I just kept trying to think, what do they mean by spring? Do they, do they mean like the, the awakening of Ingiri and, and her 
your new perspective on life? Like, what is it? What is it? Or like, so what's the renewal? Um, and there is a lot of different renewal in the movie, but I didn't think we were going to get a literal spring. So yeah. And very interestingly, immediately and Gary starts to like baptize yourself in the spring. That's what I'm saying. Do, do you see what I'm saying now? Yeah. I, I see it more now. Yeah. And I forgot because I read about that part uh, before we um, started podcasting this evening, which was, they, it was pointed out in whatever I was reading that Ingeri, she literally runs the water on her eyes that like witnessed the rape, her mouth that spoke the curse, and she's like cleansing mm. the different parts of herself that, uh, you know, that led to her guilt or whatever and remorse. Yeah, and the placement of everyone in that scene is as they're all kind of looking and reflecting on the moment. Very beautiful again. Very oh, beautiful moment. The the long extended shots that occur throughout the movie. Yeah, there's it's mostly close up for you know many scenes, uh, but the the long views are just amazing, spectacular. Um, and so in the supplements, there's a short little bit by, um, well, it's it's a you know talking head of, of the director Ang Lee. Yes, I mentioned that. I love that. <laughs> oh, did you watch it? Yeah, I, I didn't watch the Bergman one, but I watched the one with him, the one with the interview with the two actresses from this movie, and then the one with Bill Hader. I only watched those three things besides this movie. I didn't see Bill Hader, or that's not on my disc. But um, but you watched the Ang Lee one at least. Yep, which I loved, yeah. I, I love stuff like that. I love director testimonials like that, or creator testimonials, where they talk about like how he... The main point of that little featurette is that that was the movie that woke him to, to movies when he was 18 mm-hmm. and taking, and you know, for, I've said another podcast, like Pulp Fiction was that to me. And I just can't even imagine how it would frame things for me. If a Bergman movie, whichever one it was, was the one that woke me to movies that that's just remarkable. Like, yeah, that was a beautiful little, I love moments like that. Mm-hmm. He did such a great job of expressing it too. definitely recommend that extra for anyone who has access. Yeah, it's, it's not even long. It's like less than 10 minutes. Yeah. But I just, yeah, I love that stuff. It, I, I need to convert Sean at some point. Like I said, he's only seen The Seventh Seal, and it, it did not work for him at all, even though it's one of Bergman's most famous movies, if not his most famous. Um, but it just didn't, Sean just couldn't, it didn't work. And so he's not really looking to watch another Bergman movie. But I really want him to, because Bergman really is the, um, the movie maker's movie maker he is in so many ways he's the guy that all these prominent movie makers now who they all geeked on when they were in college or young and impressionable or in film school Bergman was there is Sean much of a surrealist guy I never got the impression that he was but maybe Uh, maybe that's not necessarily but he does like good movies though in general and there's plenty to choose yeah but even people who even people who love good movies can sometimes be put off by the kind of um... yeah. But I but I'm saying because while Bergman has his surrealist turns, and certainly Seventh Seal falls in that category, that's not how all his movies are. So that's why I'm hoping Sean yeah, will appreciate yeah. a different one, maybe one that's more straightforward. Oh, okay, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm very happy that I picked this one. This is it uh, served even better than my expectations. Oh, I I really loved it. I don't know what my expectations were because I never know. Because to me, the box set is like the proverbial box of chocolates. Uh, because I, I obviously never seen it. This is now one of my favorites. 
uh, of the box for sure. Um, it's probably in my top three, but that's hard because then I have to start thinking about the other ones I really, really liked, and they're really good too in their own ways. <laughs> but it is, like I said, it's not like any of the others. A little bit like Seventh Seal, but di very different. Uh, and also I, I had read that this was the last of Bergman's quote-unquote period pieces. So, oh, okay. Hmm. And I wasn't sure because for all I knew, there was like five more to come that were in a, from a distant land. But no, this is the last, and he still made tons of movies after this. So <laughs> that's another interesting thing to think about. I'll just say on the extra with the two actresses, they talked about how much they loved the beauty of the language in this movie because they were using like an older form of Swedish. Yes, and I wouldn't have known. I never would have known. I wouldn't have known either. <laughs> but I did think many times watching it, I'm like, oh, this is such a beautiful language. Like, it's very close to English. But... Not mean it is, of course, the Germanic roots. Um, but it is a beautiful language, but... And I was going to bring this up earlier, not necessarily about the language. But it caught... <laughs> the language and other things in this movie... and. Uh, of course, I have to bring up Midsummer, uh, and I get Midsummer vibes uh, throughout this movie in, in certain places. Not overtly, of course, but there's something about the scenery and the um, what do you call it? The uh, the background. Uh, what do you call it? like the sound effects? Like a, like if you're outdoors and the Mm. you just hear like the nature the wind the water the animals the birds but it's, it's you know it's just back there in the background and then just seeing the wide open spaces and i know infamously midsummer wasn't actually filmed um up north but it's still you know was meant to look like that um and there's something about the environments especially in the long views that i get tons of midsummer vibes and also the parts where characters are just having an innocent old time and getting into more than they realize, whether it's um, Ingiri and uh, Karen when they get into the, the cabin and everything else, or whether it's the uh, the composite man just going into the nice, homely-looking homestead and just thinking this is just going to be so pleasant, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, like, for some reason, like, especially the violent uh, death of the composite man, it's... It just reminds you because Midsummer is so beautiful when you're just watching the movie, and it's mostly slow paced and serene, and then boom, something will happen, and you're just like, "Oh my god!" I'm like, "Ugh!" And and that's how I feel like this movie is. It's very placid until it isn't, um, and then it just goes over the top. And there's something about those Swedish vibes, and I've got it from watching some other Swedish inspired things that I've seen in the last couple of years, and so everything like leads me back to. To midsummer and of course the pagan rituals and things like that <laughs> no that's fair i didn't get any midsummer vibes from this but that's fair oh, go go back and think about it <laughs> while you rewatch i will just say with the sound design it kept making me think of david lynch and in particular erase your head sound design thank you i need to see that of yeah I'd, I'd happily watch that i that's i love that film but yeah i kept thinking of erase your head with the, the sound design in this i remember there was some I wish I wrote it down, but I remember there was some interesting stuff um, after the rape scene where I thought the sound design was really interesting, but I didn't write it down. I don't remember now. Yeah, but... <laughs> Unfortunately. I think you'll... I, there's... 
The sound design is similarly interesting in, in many of his other movies. I'll just say that. Oh, okay, cool. I mean, well, I mean, you, you can tell it's coming from the same maker or or guys who work at the same sound studio, you know, because I'm sure it was like I don't know how big the film industry is over there in uh, <laughs> in uh, in Sweden, but I assume just like how in Japan everything's Toho, and then like with American, like let's say television. Uh, wow. Uh, especially in the old days um so like classic trek was made by cbs you know or desilu whatever uh what cbs and then like five six years ago i never watched the original 5.0 but i just wanted to, it was on hulu and i was like i just want to check out the first episode and see what the classic hawaii 5.0 was like and i watched that first episode and it's it's, it's it's almost like a Bond movie in a way, the first episode. But anyway, I just noticed how it's another CBS show. You know, they're using like all the stock sound effects and musical stings of classic Trek, and it's so jarring because you're watching this Bond-like adventure in, in Hawaii, and you just you hear like all the, the Star Trek sound effects popping in and little incident musical stings. And so, of course, because it's the same guys, right, or the same troupe you know, doing the sound. So I imagine it's probably something like that with all these Bergman movies and probably other Swedish directors who, you know, went to the same well. Yeah, per, I mean, I, I really don't know anything about that, but it, it could have been... I know Lynch puts a lot of focus on sound design with his movies. Maybe Bergman. For a modern equivalent, I would... To what I'm trying to say is, like, Weta Digital obviously became a big thing uh, after the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And if you... You watch other Weta movies, and they don't have to be Peter Jackson, but just something else that, you know, they got Weta to do their their special effects, whatever. And you can tell, like, I don't know how to explain it, but you can tell that there's shared DNA to, like, The Lord of the Rings or whatever, not because it's Peter Jackson, but because it's Weta. You know, you mm. just kind of tell. There's, there's a vibe, there's a flavor. Hmm. I'll definitely keep that in mind. I'm definitely primed to watch more Bergman after this, so if you got any other suggestions... I'd be more than happy to cover him. <laughs> oh, it's it's so hard. It's so hard. And then also, I I think this one worked where it was you were just picking one that neither one of us had seen, rather than me choose one that I like uh, already. Well, I mean, it's nice to have more context. I mean, I wish I had more time to have to think about some of the ideas in this movie. I just the two viewings and those few special. Well, there's always a chance to revisit. There's always a chance to revisit, as I will. Um, but then just watching more will help anyway, because again, you'll see these reoccurring themes over and over again. And that's the other thing. Mm. <sighs> like, it's hard for me to choose like my favorite thing about watching Bergman movies in general, because you can go many different directions. Um, but definitely a big one for me that I enjoy not in any movie, but especially Bergman movies, it's the psychology of the characters. I love that. I love that in all movies especially when the psychology mm-hmm. rings true and there's just so much psychology going on as we've kind of mentioned speaking about many of the different characters um well something that was pointed out in one of the maybe in the commentary but when you think about it it's, it's so obvious that virtually every character in the movie or especially the ones that have more speaking lines um Every character is suffering in this movie somehow. 
in their from their own perspective for their own individual reasons if you really look back there's not really there's no one happy in this movie and it's just interesting and even though you know the father's richer he has this wonderful homestead i want to call it a ranch but but and you know the mother and the father and the servants and the, the daughter and and everyone's kind of suffering. Well, Karen, uh, Karen's not suffering until she suffers, but yep. everyone else is suffering on some level. Well, she's suffering because she's woken up like she's like Arthur Dent uh, when she gets woken up. <laughs> so I guess that's Karen's suffering <laughs> is that she has to a chore to do. <laughs> she's sure interesting because she, you know, she's living in this kind of rough space, but she's so coddled and, you know, even the doing this minor favor of bringing the candles she has to like dress up to the nines yes completely living in a fantasy world of her own i thought that was quite an interesting uh take for that character again because they could have just made her like a more of a pure character yes yeah she was a big brat yeah (laughs) but then again i mean and this is what you have to wonder what bergman was struggling so you know as he wrote this you know he he well he's always struggling with whatever his faith is that's constant in his writing but you know he's also trying to say the obvious message because there's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of edible parent stuff going on here that's one of my favorite subjects ever since i learned that's what psycho is about that's like one of my favorite subjects in uh, literature and <laughs> art is edible anything and you know you kind of know this but you know for quote-unquote classic directors for the longest time Hitchcock was one of my only go-to's for that uh, kind of thing and I always thought that's one of the reasons why Psycho is like my favorite movie of his because of the psychology and the exploration of it in that movie and then of course it was much more recently that I watched The Birds all the way through for the first time and I had never seen uh, Marnie and, and all those movies are also filled with similar psychology as as psycho um and and i always thought it was so clever and i always thought wow this is so cutting edge the way it is in these movies from the 60s and the 50s and and i thought wow this is why i think hitchcock is just the man but then when i kind of indoctrinated to these bergman movies and I told you, they're deceptively simple on first glance, but then you realize how deep they get with the themes and the psychology. And then I realized that, yeah, Hitchcock's great, but if you want to go deep and get really heady, you know, th- this is like, like if we're talking about books, Hitchcock is so much more pulpy with a little bit of depth, but Bergman is literature by comparison. For me, Hitchcock is how people view Steven Spielberg. So I'm not a big Steven Spielberg fan, but I understand the appeal that he has to a lot of people. For me, I think the superior director in that vein is Alfred Hitchcock. Well, I think what Hitchcock and Spielberg do is they bring art to the masses. Because it, it is art, there's no question. But it's art that anyone could appreciate, whether you're high-minded and, and snooty and... Uh, uh, and snobby or if you're just an average joe and you go wow i get it i mean this sculpture this painting, this is something even though i've never studied art or invested so i think that's what spielberg and hitchcock do like broad appeal bringing art to the people absolutely i, I think hitchcock 
keeps to the art a little bit better than Spielberg does, but I still understand that appeal for Spielberg, even if I don't necessarily feel it all the time. I, I don't call him my favorite director or anything like Maybe when I was younger I did, but I'm much younger. But no, most of Spielberg's good movies and then some of his lesser knowns, I think, are quite fantastic. And the ones that I think are duds are kind of the same page as what other people think are duds. But I don't know that he has... I don't think that I dislike or frown upon any of his well-received movies. None I can think of off the top of my head right now. The only one that, that for me, I kind of frown upon is E.T., but that's <laughs> shit. How effing dare you? I, I like E.T. It's like a 6 out of 10 for me. Like, it's a perfectly enjoyable movie. I just don't get the love by oh any means. Oh, my <laughs> Okay, 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 okay. We have to. I have to devote a little bit of time to talk about that now. Uh, a little bit. E.T. Sure. <laughs> okay. E.T. to me is one of those things, like Lord of the Rings and other things, where or Godfather. That if you let's just say you watch him at the age of ten, the age of twenty, the age of thirty, the age of forty and beyond, those things I just named, you'll have a different relationship with them. When you're at different stages in your life. And that is a bazillion percent what happened to me with E.T. When I viewed it at different stages in my life. As a kid, I just thought it was a super great, amazing kid movie. Um, yep. Same okay. way. And then when I was more like high school, teenage years, I viewed it as like nostalgically. Like, oh yeah, I used to love this. Oh yeah. But, it, but I had this feeling of, because you know, I was getting into Pulp Fiction and all this other stuff. I was I had this feeling of oh, but ET's so quaint, and it's so you know it is what it is, and the the flashlights or torches at night through the forest are so Spielberg cliche, you know. It's just <laughs> like yeah, okay, this is a cool movie back in '82 or whatever it was, but I've moved on to bigger and better things, you know. I'm discovering who Kubrick is and stuff like that. So that was me at that stage, and then I didn't watch the movie again for two decades. Um, probably after that and then I finally revisited the movie two decades later and I was struck in a way I was never struck by that movie before Um, only when I watched it near my current age I cry like ten different times when I watch it now I never (laughs) cried when I watched it previously in my life never even thought about crying and now that movie pulls me apart, breaks me into little pieces, um, uh, emotionally, intellectually, hits me on a whole different level. There's happy moments that make me cry in the movie that are humongous, like um, fist in the air moments. And then there's these other moments where I'm crying because it, it causes me to think of just sad things in life in general that are disconnected from the movie proper but it evokes completely different thoughts now um the parts where um Hmm. et is dying and then and then the final escape and all that and i look at the movie so incredibly different now um i was going to mention how there there is a little of course there is a little bit of messianic themes going on in this movie um but of course et is messianic as all hell absolutely and in you know that's not something i ever thought at age 21 or prior (sighs) 
That movie kills. Oh my gosh. And then, even to the point about mm, four months ago, I was on a long like road trip or something. I was just on some country road on a long drive. And I just decided, you know what, I'm going to listen to the E.T. soundtrack. And I listened to uh, the climactic uh, theme probably when uh, Elliot gets on his bike and, and flies for the first time. And I was just listening to the soundtrack of John Williams. And I couldn't, I almost couldn't drive because of all the tears in my eyes and they wouldn't go away. And I almost had to pull over. So I don't know what that is. And of course I have these ties to when I was a kid and everything, but it just, I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you. No, it's, it's definitely good effort by Williams. <laughs> good effort by Williams, he says. <laughs> Put that on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> Caleb, out of Canada. It was a good effort by Williams. <laughs> I can't say it's one of his my favorites of his scores, but it is definitely a good one. It's top five, but of course there's Superman and Star Wars and everything else. Yeah, Superman takes the number one slot for me, but... And Jaws. Jaws is up. And Superman is almost like that... I think we talked about it recently, you and I. Like that first album thing, you know... And you got all your ideas, and you're putting them out there, your big ideas for the oh, first time. Yeah, yeah. But now what do you do on your second, third, tenth, fifteenth soundtrack? But I was say, um, I was thinking as you were speaking, I was like, when was the last time I watched E.T.? And I was like, oh yeah, I was 18. And I was like, oh yeah, that was almost ten years ago. Like, maybe it's time to revisit it again. So, <laughs> oh, but uh, any final thoughts on The Virgin Spring or last minute things you want to bring up? It was fantastic. I love it. I love Bergman more. Gosh, you know, I've only there was like forty-five movies in the set or something like that. I, I don't, I've seen maybe like eleven or twelve. Oh my gosh! Look how much more I have to watch. Like it's so exciting when I think about it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, and it's also like having a whole wooden barrel of some some magical wine because I just sip from it. <laughs> like like I feel it's going to last me another decade <laughs> to get through that damn thing because I don't like to run through it. So it's like a slow drip of, of bourbon going into my veins. Um, and different every time, but with that same sweet kind of taste to it. I, I know the experience. Oh, it's so great. It's so great. It's so good. It's like if every movie in the Godzilla set was a classic. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> but that's what it's like. Um, and actually, yeah, and there's more Bergman movies than there is Godzilla movies total. That's crazy. Um, but also because I'm hijacking your show, I have to give it a rating or something, even though I haven't thought sure. about it and I'm now I'm thinking about it. So, well, this is hard cause it, it has that new car smell on it and that definitely taints a person's ratings. To be honest, movies like this, I feel like defy rating. Like I couldn't imagine giving a rating to oh, this. I can, <laughs> but if you ask me in a year, it may alter a bit. Well, it probably will if I rate it again in a year. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean it'll be worse. It could be better. But uh, I just need to ask you for a unit of measure, and then I'll, I'll be able to calculate. Um, I I don't. I have no clue. <laughs> These are not things that I usually do in my show. What shows, did you see but... in the movie? Give, give me an element that you saw. Um, uh, pushed over trees? I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I need to think about what that really means. Or I need to... I can just cheat and listen to the commentary. How about um, 
decapitated fingers. Oh, yeah, How about that's that? Good. Decapitated's not the right word, but. Right, I know what you're saying. But, um. <laughs> Um, how many fingers? How many loose fingers? Uh, it's tough. I'm, I'm torn between <laughs> two ratings. For now, with an asterisk for the future, I'm going to give it uh, four full fingers and a digit. Uh, that's four and a half on the five on the five finger scale. Yeah, that's right where I was too. If I was going to give it a rating, which I don't necessarily. Ratings for me are such impermanent things that I don't quite understand the purpose. Yes, and they are impermanent, which makes it easier for me to give one now, because I'm not locked in. But on my second viewing, my my first viewing would have been between a 3.5 and a 4. My second viewing is absolutely a 4.5. I, I loved it on the second viewing. I was like, yeah, this oh, that's amazing. Just hit me right, right in the right spot. Yeah, and for those who don't care, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's 87% with the critics, 92 with the audience. But you see, speaking of first viewings, if I had no idea who Bergman was, didn't know the man, um, and someone five years ago just played this movie and I had to just sit there and watch it with no context, and let's say I don't know anything about Swedish culture or Swedish film or anything like that, which was me five years ago, and some random person said, hey, let's go watch this movie playing at the draft house. Okay. With zero context, I would have maybe given this movie a three, like in a vacuum. But because of everything we've discussed and my history, my back, my pre-knowledge of Bergman and his ways, and then looking into it and trying to figure out what things mean and the symbolism, yeah, easy four and a half. But yeah, yeah, I'm I'm super glad this was the first one we watched because even though it's almost unfortunate because I know so many of his movies don't kind of dwell in that surrealist realm it just hit me right in the sweet spot i I love this kind of stuff so it was the perfect introduction for me yeah and i need to as i said i want i want to check out both versions of the house on the left i've never seen either and um they mention rashomon a lot i don't know how to pronounce that that sounds about correct which i've never seen but but the akira kurosawa movie which depending on what you read um bergman borrowed a lot from that movie as well so oh really yes <laughs> or it's oh, definitely wow, inspired that. by that and 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 of course the ballad so i gotta see because a lot of people i mean not necessarily criticize like they hate this movie but basically said oh yeah this is bergman doing his version of i don't even want to say it now but yeah so uh, I gotta check that out, and it's a Criterion release, and I'm on the tip of hitting uh, buy now on Amazon on that. If you want, we could just do the whole series. We could do Rashomon, and then we can do Last House on the Left and the remake, if you'd like. I mean, I'm happy to do them all. <laughs> I'm happy to do them all, too. But, and just like I'm happy to do all the Exorcists, but I also don't know if I'd want to do them all in a row, because I like to see... I, I, I want to. I, I need to see some more Bergman. Uh, I just need because this this was such a spark to like ignite me to want to pop in another one, whether it's for the podcast or not. Even if it's just for myself, I need to pop in another one. Yeah, and I've only seen one Kurosawa film, so I would be happy to see another one. I've only seen um, what was that one? Uh, Kegamusha, the one that came out in 1980, and George Lucas visited the set and was like, oh, you know, Kurosawa's my 
Oh, I've heard of it, but not seen it. I've seen... Yeah, it's really good. Oh, I've seen probably five or six of his movies, but most of them were a really long time ago. A uh, really long time ago when I saw them. Uh, and the most recent one was the one that's... I think it's called Ikari or something like that. The one with the guy on the, on the bench. Or not the bench, the swing. But I'm not enough of a Kurosawa expert to say, but... Uh, he probably is the Japanese version of Bergman in a way. I've heard a similar similar statement, so it's not surprising to me. Yeah, because although some of his movies, of course, are samurai and they're more action-oriented, some of them, but just they're so varied, though. You know, and, and oh, oh, they're just they're the masters. I'm telling you, <laughs> those two guys. Again, I mean. For Surrealist fans, they say Kurosawa as well as Surrealist adjacent, just like they say about Bergman. Yeah, so definitely check this film out if you haven't. If you haven't, I wish you hadn't watched this podcast or listened to it because we spoiled the whole thing. Shout out to you, Isaac, who I'm sure did this. <laughs> but I, I love I love watching it. It's okay if you ruin this one movie because there's so many more in the well to go to. Yeah, and, and for some people, I feel like discussions like these help these kind of movies because... You could easily watch it and just think it was like a last house on the left, like not another side to it that you're not seeing. Yep. And that's what I was trying to say earlier. Yep. 100% agree. Yeah, because last house on the left, it's interesting because it's a little more thoughtful than most exploitation, but at the end of the day, it's still just exploitation. Like there's not another level to it, I don't think. But this film definitely has that, and I think it'll just get better each time I watch it. So very happy to have seen it. Nice. I hope Sean listens to this. <laughs> oh, but yeah, tune in next time, folks, for whatever the fuck we have next lined up. Who who knows? I, I guess it's actually the Exorcist prequels is probably the next one that me and you will do. But but who knows what you would have been potting if I hadn't have infected your show. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I've been trying to get a surrealist retrospective started for forever. It just hasn't happened quite yet, but it's it's still coming. I've got it basically lined up, so it'll happen one of these days. We'll be back. Peace. the hidden fortress i have not no not yet one day you will and when you read about the hidden fortress i usually read something to the effect of oh yeah you know george lucas took some of the hidden fortress took some of this other thing some of this other thing and they just make it sound like it's just a piece of the pie but but when i watched the hidden fortress it was 18 years ago whatever it was 
I felt like it was 75% of the pie. And I, don't, I couldn't understand why people would say, oh, he took some. Took some? Really? Watch it and tell me if he only took some. Because... <laughs> yeah, when me and Isaac finished our Star Wars retrospective, we promised that we would do four other films. We would do The Hidden Fortress because it's so integral. We would do um, American Graffiti and then THS 1138. And then we would do um, Star Wars again, but not as a commentary. Just as to kind of finish up the Star Wars retrospective. Well, then you so. got to hit Willow for your epilogue. Yeah, maybe. I'm no fan of Willow, but I'd... <laughs> I'll I'm just saying, keeping in the theme. <laughs> um, but I feel like it fits with the first three you named. I'm quite familiar with the first two you named, but I really want to see uh, THX. It just had its anniversary recently, I believe. And there's also there's the, there's the original college film version that he made. And then there's the theatrical version that he made. Yeah, then there's the uh, uh, special edition version that he's put out. That's the only version you can get now. Thanks a lot, Lucas. Oh, damn it. I didn't know. I knew I should have bought that DVD or, or I don't remember if it was DVD or Blu-ray, but I knew I should have bought it when it came out and I'm such a fool for not. Yeah, I, I think the non-special edition one goes for like 80 or $90 that's, now for the DVD. That's not out of the realm of purchase possibilities <laughs> in, in my current standing. Yeah, I mean, I've already got it on Blu-ray with the special edition version, but I might pick up the other one for our review. But I de- that's another movie that I like more every time I see it. Every time I watch it, I feel like it yeah. gets better. I was hoping that maybe there'd be some kind of 4K release or something for the anniversary, but nada that I'm aware of. No, that's not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> or maybe not even at all. I don't think anybody cares about that movie, including Lucas. Well, I do want to check out Red Tails. I noticed it was on Disney Plus, I guess, because of the whole Lucas deal. I never saw that one. So maybe I'll check that one out. Yeah. <laughs> Half groaned. Is the podcast over now? I can never tell. <laughs> but see, that's the same thing that happened with like the Godfather saga. And I was telling this to my cousin. I have a cousin who's approximately 13 or 14 years younger than me. And he's totally me but you know that many years you know delayed and and he loves movies just like i love movies and we and him we love very similar movies and directors and all that we're very similar uh but he had never seen the godfather trilogy and i always talk about it like it's you know it's the greatest thing ever practically um and i finally got it for him for like christmas like three or four years ago and of course, I was like, oh, have you watched it yet? Have you watched it? And finally he did. And he was like, yeah, the first one's pretty good. <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's taking me a while to want to get into the second one. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Finally, he watched them all. And, and he was like, mm. he was like, yeah, they're pretty good. But he's like, you know, I think they were too overhyped for me because he's always heard, you know, all the amazing things about Godfather. And then the other thing that mm. hurt him in his viewing was, you know, he's like, and it's also kind of hard to watch when you've already seen like so many gangster movies already, and this is like the more basic version mm. in a way, in a way, asterisk. But you know what I mean? Because he's like, you know, it's not as shocking <laughs> when you've seen like so many other modern gangster movies and things. And I was like, yeah, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. But I was using the the generational argument with him, um, which was because I had the same experience with Godfather when I saw it the first time I was like 19 or 20 and I was like, Oh, it was pretty good, but I didn't get the hype. Um, but the older I get, the more you connect with the trilogy differently. 
and also like I I tell Sean when we have some side conversations there's a lot of movies that are different once you have children and I, I mean it sounds obvious on its face but then it's a it's different to experience it firsthand, what I'm talking about. And it almost feels like a weird voodoo magic gets into your brain. Just by the, you don't understand how it works. Like what? <laughs> I have progeny and then I'll see the world different. And again, some of that sounds obvious, but it it's one thing to describe a giant squid or a dinosaur. It's another thing to meet a giant squid or a dinosaur. And that's how I feel it is, you know, not having kids and then having kids and then watching movies and reading stories. And I tell this to Sean, of course, because I mean, it's no secret to anyone who Sean he doesn't have any children. And I, I tell him, I'm telling you, Sean, you would see <laughs> a lot of movies very differently if you had some progeny running around. And and that made Godfather really different for me in my older years. See, what's funny with me with Godfather is my parents, um, they had a giant VHS collection when I was a kid. And I would just, um, I wouldn't even ask them permission. I would just watch whatever I wanted because they were never around. And so I saw the Godfather trilogy when I was like maybe seven and they blew my socks off, like com- completely amazing, especially the second one. Now my, my favorite's the first one, but at the time when I was a kid, the, the second one I would just watch over and over again. I thought it was so amazing. I vacillate over the years between what's my favorite. I mean, obviously between three and no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> with the first two. <laughs> Um, although if you listen to our podcast on Best Picture Podcast, I turned around big when I revisited the third one. But anyway, um, yeah, I remember when you guys were covering that, I kept saying like, oh, it's not so bad. I mean, when I was a kid, because I didn't have the, uh, influence of the culture hating on that right. movie. I just that thought helps. it was another really good entry. Yeah. It really helps when you're not shaded by the culture, but I vacillated between the first two over the years but I usually now pretty much just go with the second. I mean, the first is so iconic on its own, being the original and everything. But the second, I am such a sucker for generational tales told well and juxtaposing things. And so that's why I probably give the nod to part two if I had to choose one or the other, because it adds, even though the first one's such a perfect movie, the generational aspects of the second give it an added dimension. I mean, it's kind of cheating uh, on my rating scale because, of course, the, the second's going to do better. But I, what, what can I say? What can I do? <laughs> that's what makes it good. What's hilarious is that's the exact reason why I would say that I love the first one. That's really interesting. We have, we've discussed those one of those days. Because it doesn't have the generational aspect? No, because of the generational aspect. But because of it, you like the first one more. Okay, well... Explain. Yeah, I feel like it's. I just I love seeing Don Corleone as this old man who's lived all that experience and okay. have his new son kind of come in and have to learn that experience himself. I I think that's some brilliant stuff in that first movie. But anyway. Oh, I see what you're saying, but again, yeah, I completely. But then I like seeing the, I like seeing it explained and and, it's it's like a Phantom Menace was done right is is what Godfather Two is. Yeah, it's almost like the reverse of the first movie. Oh, oh, I've heard that brought up somewhere. Like, how cool would that be if The Phantom Menace was a sequel to Return of the Jedi and then it had flashbacks to what was happening 
in the old Republic era? How cool, if that's how it was originally made, how cool would that be? Uh, I, uh, yeah, maybe let's let's finish up this uh, this other. Well, podcast. I guess you have to do a pre-Vader death. <laughs> now we're jumping off the twenty other ones. Or I guess you'd have like Luke's young progeny coming up, and then you would juxtapose what was happening with Anakin. There you go. There you go. Yes, that'd be better. Yeah, oh, I love it. Um, 